Well, gang, good morning. You awake, or do I need to call Susie back up here? <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. In the middle of a sermon, if I see anyone sleep, I'll just point to Susie, and she'll wake you up. <laughs> uh, so today we are beginning our Summer Psalm series. We've been doing this every summer since uh, we began. First summer would have been 2014. Uh, it's crazy how many more psalms we have to go, and I was telling Tim this morning, actually, that I always think, like, we've hit all the major ones. We've hit Psalm 23 and Psalm 1, and, and, and you keep just finding more and more great psalms, and I imagine it's going to be that way till the end, and then we have a bunch of the really weird and precatory things, uh, and it'll just be one summer of really strange psalms, but uh, for the meantime, uh, they've been incredibly refreshing. I think you'll find that to be the case today. Uh, we're in Psalm 30 today, so grab a Bible, head over to the 30th Psalm, and uh, so King David wrote this psalm. And he wrote it for the, the dedication of the temple, only King David was dead before the dedication of the temple ever began. And so the idea here is, is most likely that he wrote it with just this future event in mind, that when this day comes, here is something to be included in that. Uh, and, and this is a, uh, <clears throat> what's called a, a Thanksgiving which is going to feel a little weird as you get through the middle of this. You'll see a lot of uh, weird lamenting and sorrow things happening, and yet... I hope we're going to see just the overflow of, of gratitude from the, the lips of David in this, this psalm. That's what I hope to show you today. So uh, we're going to read it, <clears throat> Psalm 30, and uh, we'll begin in verse 1. <clears throat> I will extol you, O Lord. You have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol and restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. And clothed me with the gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. So, Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, as we begin a time in the Psalms again this summer, we ask for you to minister to our minds, to minister to our hearts. May we both be challenged and comforted by these psalms that you have given and preserved for your people. Teach us today, Lord, to ask for help and to give grateful praise to, for the help that you give. <clears throat> Lastly, we ask the same that the author of Psalm 119.18 does when, when he asks, writing, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things of your law. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So David begins this psalm um, with this praise to God for deliverance. He says, I, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. 
See, first thing to understand in this psalm is, is, is this is not about his enemies attacking him. So many of the psalms are dealing with that sort of situation. So I want to make it clear that what's going on here is, is David's actually dealing with some sickness, some sickness that is so bad that he fears it's going to end in death. And he gives us this image of, of being drawn up. It's, it's like a bucket in a well being, being pulled up from someone who is actually outside of the well. And so as God delivers him from this sickness, his, his enemies will not be able to rejoice over his death because, indeed, God has delivered him. So often in the Psalms, enemies are, are not named. I don't know if you know that when you're reading through the Psalms, you see that very rarely will anything particular be given. And the reason for that is, is these were given for, for corporate worship and so that uh, the people of God could follow this as a model of, of prayer in a lot of instances. It means that, uh, you know, we, we can actually supply our own names for those. The Israelites could do that. We today can do the same thing. When you think of enemies in generally, you pray through the psalm, you just supply the enemy yourself to understand it a little better. And you see, God, God here, though, has, has responded to this prayer, and we see it in verses 2 and 3, and, and notice who does each of these things. It says, <clears throat> he says, God, you have healed me. You have brought, brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. That, that word Sheol, it's hard to pronounce. Uh, it, it's just the place of death in the Jewish understanding. But, but, but here we're seeing that God has indeed healed him, that he doesn't ultimately go there. He doesn't die. And, and, and we've got to understand this. You've got to listen to this, that, that David is viewing the world very differently than most people view the world today. See, when David looks at this sickness, he, he sees it not as a result of, of, of random virus or bacteria. Um, <clears throat> You know, he was, rather, he sees it as, you know, he's not seeing this as something that just randomly happened to him because of where he might have been at some point. But but he understands this as something that God has actually caused to help or caused to to happen to him. I've been reading this this book with with John and Sam. I don't remember who suckered who into reading it, but uh, it's called Our Our Secular Age, and it's this 160-page book uh, that's based on the writings of a 900-and-something page book that I have no intention of ever reading, uh, originally written by a guy named Charles Taylor. And, and so anyway, Charles Taylor, the original author, is, is pointing out to this, this idea to us that, that pre-modern men and women, pre-modern, right, before us, saw themselves as, as porous. And that's a word he uses. And by porous, he means this. He means uh, humanity believed their bodies and souls were vulnerable to unseen, external, and spiritual forces, demons, angels, spirits, God. Um, on the other hand, modern men and women, we today, view, view our life as though there is this buffer between the unseen spiritual influences and, and our lives, usually, usually because they simply don't believe any of those things exist at all. Sometimes that they might seem they exist but really can't interfere with the world as we know it. And so then, uh, for the modern mind, disease is merely germs. Uh, mental illness are, are just hereditary or the result of, of some poor upbringing or such. And, and the result is such that uh, there's no reason to consider anything outside of what is observably seen because even if God or angels or, or demons exist, our modern view believes that they're outside of this buffer, this division between God and us. So what this means is, is for a purely secular mindset, there's no place for transcendence. Um, let me try to explain that. Mike, Mike Cosper, one of the guys who writes a chapter in this book, says, gives this great illustration of this. He says, imagine a dome, 
Everything inside the dome is what, what Taylor calls the eminent domain, and by that he means uh, the things we can touch, the things we can understand, reasonable things. You know, you, you plant an acorn, and you can reasonably expect that a tree is going to grow from it. You, you take an antibiotic, and you can reasonably expect that, it, that um, an infection may go away. And he goes on to say uh, that, that outside the dome is, is this realm of transcendence. People whose imaginations are formed by life in a secular age bump their heads on the ceiling of the dome when they veer near ideas that invoke transcendence, be they religion, morals, or aesthetic. In, in other words, in our secular age, men and women struggle to believe that God actually exists. That much we know, right? But, but we also find that even as, as Christians, that in our day-to-day -day life, we, we function as though God is, is actually buffered away from us, that he can't actually affect things in the world, in our lives. That's the way we, we function often. But, but listen, you've you got to understand this. As Christian people, we, we have real hope in the transcendence. God is real, and from his hands, in our view, <clears throat> in, our, in our view, can come both good and bad things, right? From his hands come good and bad things according to how we might view them, is what I'm trying to say there. And, and so this doesn't mean that every sickness, then, is a result of some sin in your life. There's not the one-to-one, -one, what did I do, right? Uh, it, it doesn't mean that every mental disorder is the result of, of demon possession or something like that. Don't, don't jump to those sort of conclusions. But, but sometimes it, it's just a result of the fact that we live in a world that is completely affected by sin through and through. It is such a broken world that sin in general is causing some of these things. Sometimes the, the body affects our mind, or our mind affects our bodies in, in very real ways, because that's the way God made us, right? Body, body and soul, um, by design. And so hey, here's what I'm trying to say, is that even in medicine today, we, we sometimes give too much credit to the reasonable one-to-one uh, -one idea, but even in medicine, we, we find that there, there's not a one-to-one -one result with everything. When you go to the doctor and you tell him, this is what's going on with me, he, he's going to say something along, along the lines of, we're, we're going to try this medicine, or we're going to try this surgery and, and see how it goes. It's, it's, it's never, you know, take this pill, and without a doubt, within 24 hours from now, you are going to be healed. No, it's, 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 this is how it often works. This is how it usually works. This is our understanding of the way that when we use this, this, this can happen. It, and we're hoping this is going to work for you in the way we've seen it work for other people. Um, when, when I was in, in seminary, I, I had a, a double herniated disc. So basically the disc squishes out and goes into your um, nerve things that are in your back. Nerve things, there's a better word for that. Um, all I know is it was incredibly painful. I walked like I was 40, um, bending over. <laughs> I would have said that then. Uh, so anyway, the, the doctor did surgery on it to fix it. They just go in, they slice off the edges, and... and uh, very, very confident doctor. He's like, yeah, this should work. Good, you know, good luck with life. And, uh, and, and it healed so well that, that I was able to go about my life completely normal. At the same time, uh, a classmate of mine in seminary had almost the exact same injury, had the exact same surgery from a different guy, uh, and, and it healed somewhat, right? He could walk upright. The pain had gone away. But he was told that, uh, you know, you're not to go jogging. You're not to play sports that are going to have you moving around in weird ways anymore. That was kind of his life. And like I said, mine healed so well that I continued to play all sorts of sports, contact things, crazy stuff. And, and uh, you know, I've always been grateful for the way that, that my body healed in that situation. Two surgeries, but they both healed very differently. Both were a gift of the Lord and an answer to, to prayer in that regard. And I, and I point that out just so you understand that, 
that the healing is a very different process, right? There's something going on there, something unknown that's not a one-to-one situation. We, we as Christians in the 21st century, we, we ought to be absolutely amazed at all that science is learning. All that, that the world, you know, about our world, about our bodies, about the way that things connect. Be absolutely amazed, you know. Don't, don't see this as some anti-God thing. That's not what's going on here. And, and so just be amazed at the new procedures. This is good stuff. Um, but let us not, not bump our heads on the ceiling here. You know, uh, the ceiling of this, this dome. Let us know that there is no buffer between us and God. And, and, and so we can follow the doctor's prescription and, and see the wisdom in that. And at the same time, pray. Pray with real hope that God will grant our bodies to heal in the way that we're, we're desiring them to heal. Because if, we're, if, we're, if we view the world as though healing is just this predictable result, right? This one-to-one, you do this and this happens. Then the end result is you have no reason to, to be thankful at all. None. But look at David's response here. There in verse 4, because he knows that God is real and that God has intervened in his health, there in verse 4, David writes, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. David's gratefulness, because he sees God's work in this healing, has led him to to not just praise God himself, right, But, but to actually recruit saints, this is what it says here. Recruit saints to join him in, in grateful praise. Why? It's as simple as, as he was sick and he thought he was going to die and God has healed him. I mean, how, how great is this? We, we, we are so often sometimes to draw people into our life for like the complaints and the bad things in, in, in our lives. You know, hey, come here. You know, guess what terrible thing happened to me? Isn't that terrible? And we want to draw them into that. And, and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, let us learn from David here to, to draw people into our gratitude, into our praise. You know, uh, guess what glorious thing God did today? It doesn't have to be huge, but, but guess what glorious thing God did to me? You know, when, when he says here then this, this oh, you his saints, that word saints, you know, don't get hung up on a, a Catholic understanding of that word. The, the Hebrew word here has the same root as the word for covenantal love. Uh, Hesed, we've seen it before, the, the covenantal, the steadfast love of the Lord. And in other words, he's, he's not listing, uh, enlisting, you know, the super holy people come alongside and worship God with me. He's calling to all of those who are in a covenant relationship with God. All of those who know the Lord and are, and are known by the Lord to come alongside and, and worship with him. The Israelites at this time and at the time of this writing and, and the church today. Now, Verse 5 is one of the most quoted and loved passages in the Psalms, uh, at least the, the second half of it is. If you, if you want to go and you know, look things up, this is the verse in Psalm 30 that will show up in a, uh, anytime you're looking up Psalm 30 in, in a search. Um, it, it says this, that the one everyone loves is, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And see, all, all by itself, uh, out of the fuller context, this, this could seem to just mean something like, um, after the rain, there's sunshine, or, you know, the song that Annie sang, something like that. There's always tomorrow. Um, you know, it's this basic idea of your situation might be tough, but it's not always going to be this way. It's, it's going to get better. And, and that's typically true. That's not bad advice, but that's not what this verse right here is particularly about, because David is talking about the favor of God. You see, that the second half of verse 5, which I just read to you, is indeed beautiful, 
but so is the first half of verse 5, that, that here says, says of God, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. We, we see this contrast between the anger of God and the favor of God here, and it's very, very important. But, but first, I, I want to ask this. Is, is there a place in your understanding of God for him to be angry? Is there a place for it? Is that a weird idea for you, that God gets angry? We, we might not know that from just general ideas of when, when the culture talks about God or, or Christianity in general, but, but if you read the scriptures, you figure out real quick that God does indeed get angry. We, we see Jesus also get angry, right, in the temple. Um, just like good and loving moms and dads are often, not often, but get angry at times. You, you, See, the reality is, yes, God gets angry. And, and I know that when we look in our culture, we, we have seen anger that devolved into sin against people, hate in their hearts, violence in their actions, or, or degrading words of all sorts of things. But, but those responses, the, the type of anger there is, is what's sin, not, not always anger in and of itself. You see, anger, in, in this case, righteous anger, is, is a response to sin by God who is holy. That's, that's what this is. And, and what's incredibly significant then in this psalm is, is the confidence that God's anger is just for a short moment. It's not forever. Let me ask you, you ever, you ever done something to a friend, a, a spouse, a, someone in your life, and, and they are justly angry at you for what you did? Or you had a, a parent that was angry at you because of some sin you committed? I mean, think about that moment. In, in that moment... It not the desire in that moment, just the, the hope that they will soon not be angry at you anymore? Kind of that internal thought, I, I wish I hadn't done it, but please, please forgive me. Please don't be angry forever. It, isn't that the hope? And for the covenant people of God, anger and suffering or affliction, as we see here, uh, it, it's not where the relationship with God ends. His, his favor is forever for his people, and, and thus joy is always in the future, always in the future for those whose faith is in Christ. And See, when, when Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17 speaks about the Christian suffering, it was a reality for them in ways that we've never, ever experienced in our, our culture here. But he says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that there, there is affliction now, but joy comes in the morning. There is a future hope here. Je Jesus in John 16, 20 through 22 says this, Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And he gives this picture. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour, her hour has come, but... When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being ha has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will, see, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. When, when we trust in the Lord in suffering, we, we're often gaining you know, the joy of, of increased faith. We're gaining a, a greater view of the eternal hope that we have in the gospel. 
Because of our relationship, our covenants or relationship with God through Christ, we can be confident that even in our nights of weeping, no matter how long those nights might seem, that joy will indeed come with the morning. There's an end in sight. And in verse 6, David says, I said in my prosperity, I, I shall be moved. It's easy to skip over this and miss it. What, what David is doing here is he's actually confessing that this is the sin that, that he sees has brought about sickness in his life. He was believing this bold statement of hubris, of arrogance, that, that looking to himself as, as powerful, I cannot be moved. I mean, how often... Have we been, been so impressed with our own ability when, when the blessings that we're actually receiving are the gift of God given to us? We, we often think we, we can prosper, right? Simply by, by our own skills, our relentless work, right? If I can just work hard enough, then we can prosper. As, as churches, there's, there's always this temptation to believe in, in marketing schemes or, or methods of, of evangelism of some sense that will build the church instead of trusting the Lord to, to work through the simple proclamation of his gospel. Even as a, a, Americans, I don't, I don't know if you realize that, I mean, maybe you do, you know, it, it's so easy for us to trust in the fact that our military is so incredibly mighty compared to what we see around the world or, or that our, our wealth is massive compared to what we see around the world. Those are the things that are so easy to start looking to and trusting in. But, but David here, though, remembers this time when he thought that he was secure, that nothing could touch him. He's looking back on it as he says this. And he's confessing, you know, he, he pompously forgot God. And, and God does for him in this moment what he, what he sometimes does for us. Nobody wants it, but, but sometimes we need it. See, God confronts him. He confronts us with our own insufficiency. Our own failure, our own weakness, our own sickness, the idea that we're not as strong as we might think we are, either in, in business or health or anything of that nature. And only in, in hindsight does David acknowledge that it was God who made him strong like a mountain. Because of David's pride, God removes his favor. That, that's what he means when he says to God, you, you, you hid your face. And then you see the result of that for David. I was dismayed. But, but why? What, was God just being cruel in this moment, right? Is it just, let me show you my power? Well, what was God's purpose in doing this? Listen, the reason, the reason that God removes his blessing, and, and thus the reason that, that David faces this intense sickness, is, is redemptive. That might sound weird. It's absolutely, it's redemptive. It, it was to lead David to a place of need so that he would turn back and run into the strong arms of the Lord. See, at the, the heart, this, this is covenant love in action because what we need more than the good life, you've got to know this, what we need more than the good life is God. It's God. As Tim Keller has said, God shakes our confidence in our earthly life so that we can yearn for our heavenly one. David in his suffering turns to God and he trusts in him, which, which Jerry Bridges points out in our, is our first responsibility whenever we face affliction. He, he says our, our first priority in adversity is to honor and glorify God by trusting him. That's not easy to do, but it's always right. It's always where we need to be. And, and so then what's, what's David do when, when facing this affliction? This is important. He finds himself in sickness, and, and, and it says that he cries out to God, right? Well, I think you know another word for, for crying out to God. It's prayer. 
And then in verses 8 through 10, it's part of what David actually prays while he's sick. He, it's this plea to live, you know, God, let me live and not die. And, and you can look in your, your passage there and see what he says. But, but listen, he's, he's not just saying there, these aren't just, you know, God, I will give you empty words. I will say the things you want me to say if you'll let me live. He's saying, God, I want to worship you. And the Jews didn't have a good understanding of, of eternity, of eternal life, of such at this time. And, and so he feared, God, if I die, I can no longer worship you. That's taken from me. Um, years ago, I scanned into Evernote, it's a program um, for a computer, these, a bunch of my old journals that I had written. And that means I can actually Google through my own journals, which is a weird experience. But uh, I was surprised this week to actually find one on Psalm 30 from a long time ago. Uh, and listen, it's weird to share something you never intended to actually share with someone when you wrote it, um, but I'm going to anyway, because I'm 40, and who cares anymore, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I wrote this. Uh, the writer in Psalm 30, verse 9, is pleading with God for his life. He says, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will, will it tell of your faithfulness? That verse broke me today. Because I realize I don't have that point to make to God if I'm pleading for my life. I can't say with the psalmist, God, if you allow me to die, that's one less person who will be singing your praises across this earth. I, I can't say, leave me here to, to live longer because I tell the world of your faithfulness. Or, God, save me so I can praise you in my personal life, in, my, in the public spaces. I'm glad this is breaking me. I was beginning to wonder if I was already broke beyond feeling that sort of sorrow. But God, I need you. And, and that's what David is asking here in verse 10. He's saying, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. Oh, Lord, be my helper. And, and David shows us that, that God answers this prayer in a, in a mighty way. My journal goes on. I'll, it ended with this. He said, I, I wrote this years ago. He says, so, so the prayer that I really wish to pray today is also in Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12 which says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me, clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. And then it ends with this personal prayer at the time. Please, God, turn my mourning, my bitterness, my anger, my fear and anxiety, my loneliness, my selfishness. Yes, turn my me-centered life into a thee-centered life. May dancing be the tone of my life. May I sing your praises today to my family, to all who will listen. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And so then in verse 12 and 11, 11 and 12, I guess you should say them in chronological order, right? Um, we, we see quite a contrast here. David, David's repentance leads him to this closer relationship with God, closer than before. And we see that, that this joy just pours out of him in, in praise. His, his sackcloth is spun into gladness, and, and sorrowful mourning is replaced by joyful dancing. See, here the psalmist beautifully illustrates this triumph of God's mercy over judgment. I, I did some, some research on dancing after this, not, not like how to do the Charleston or the Doogie or whatever kind of thing, um, but research in Scripture. And one of the most surprising discoveries I found was in Luke 15:25. It's that well-known story of the prodigal son. You probably know it in some regard. Um, one of the sons, there's two sons. One leaves home, and he wastes his inheritance on worldly pleasures. He finds himself just wishing he could eat with these, these pigs that he found, or he was out serving. Um, he eventually goes back to his father's house, 
and confessing his unworthiness to be included, he, he asked for a place among the servants of, of his father's house. And instead, the father welcomes him back and throws this big celebration because he's returned. He's so joyous at his return. And when the older brother is coming home, we, we read this. This is that passage there in Luke 15. And he says this, says this, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. There was dancing at the celebration of the return of, son. There was, of the son. There was dancing because there was joy. Because, because the father had shown grace, the people were dancing. Except for the jealous older brother. He doesn't dance. He hated that grace was poured out on the younger brother. He couldn't appreciate it, and so he doesn't dance. I, I think maybe we dance too little, literally and figuratively, but I mean it more figuratively here. And, and I'm concerned a bit that it might be because we don't celebrate the grace of God enough. Christians, let, it, let us feel the music of God's grace and dance. I mean, even if you're not, not really a, a dancer, you know, may the tone of our lives and our speech be as joyful as dance when you speak of, of the grace that God has shown us uh, and to others, both in the gospel and all the very little ways throughout your life. We are far too little, far too slow to see the ways God has been, been graciously serving us in our life, graciously caring for us in our life. I, I think we can learn better how to respond to God's goodness. When we look at David here in verse, verse 12, he says to God, I'll sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. You know, would we, would we praise God more? This is a question. Would we praise God more if we, if we took notice of the way he was working in our lives all over the place? In healing and in success and just little blessings here and, here and there. <clears throat> you know, do not... Do not let the secular age remove you from seeing the presence of God, the work of God in our lives. Um, I'll tell you a story. We, we do an annual skip day with our children. Uh, today we tell their school, yes, they're skipping school. They're going to be hanging out with us. But we do it one at a time. So it's just one child at a time. And last Thursday was, was Beckham's skip day. He wanted to, to do it for months because he'd been wanting to go catch a baby turtle was the thing he wanted to do. Uh, and Laura and I are both talking him down as the day is coming forward, thinking, you know, uh, we've not actually seen baby turtles around here. We've never caught one except for, I guess, Beckham caught one years ago. Um, and, and the idea was we're not really going to catch one, and, uh, but, but we're going to give it a try. Just don't be disappointed when we don't. And the very first pond we go to is not one we've been to before. And we look at it. It has no sign of turtles. We walk around it. We find nothing. Uh, we do find this big old bullfrog, though. So we catch the bullfrog, and, and Beckham sets him down. And, and this bullfrog, I don't know if you've ever seen him jump. They just kind of launch into, like, nowhere now. And so it's just like a bad driver running into rocks and stuff on his way back to the pond. Uh, but eventually he jumps in, and up next, right next to the bullfrog pops this little, little bigger than a quarter-sized turtle uh, right there in the pond. And uh, Beckham snatches it with his hand catches this turtle. And I'm sitting here thinking, how is this possible? It actually crossed my mind that, that Laura had gone and bought a turtle and gave it to Beckham. Because <laughs> there's no way this could happen. <laughs> um, and, you, and you might be thinking, why? What does this story have to do with anything? I just like turtles. No. Because uh, no, I, I, I had this back and forth thing going on in my head the whole time it's happening. One, you know, that Laura had set me up. But but, but two, I was sitting here thinking, what are the chances? This is so incredible. 
And then I'm thinking, no, this is the blessing of the Lord, you know, on our, on our day. But, but part of me, as I'm going through this, feeling, you know, really kind of foolish about this, why would God care if we caught a turtle? I mean, yes, it's unlikely. And, and the weird thing is I'd actually prayed for it the night before thinking it's not going to happen. I had no confidence in my prayer, to be honest. But, you know, I, I was tempted to just be silent and just, just leave it to the, it was just a random, random chance of, you know, we found a turtle. Um, and the whole reason I wanted to do that was I wanted to remain, you know, retain my reasonableness as a human being in the 21st century. And yet it was an occasion for the three of us to actually speak out loud, that, you know, with gratitude to the Lord for this, this simple providential act of placing that squirrel, in, uh, that squirrel, now we're catching squirrels, that turtle in, the, in that spot. And again, I hesitate to even tell that story because it's not a miracle, right? You're like, you found a turtle, great. Um, you know, we're not talking life or death. It's, it's not like David's, you know, situation. It's just turtles. But, but you know, why not? Why not? We, we, we are putting the, you know, the gracious works of God. Or why are we putting the gracious works of God in our life through some kind of filter? Like, is that big enough to warrant praise? Is that, like, miraculous enough that we can say God had a hand in this? Is that, is that the kind of thing we talk at the praise for God? And, uh, you know, if we see the work of God and our hearts are full, you know, just full of joy over it, then, then why not just speak the praises to, to the Lord? Why not speak out loud his, his praises to anyone who listen? You see, you know, Jesus teaches in Luke 6, 6.45 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, when we go from here this week, let us look for God's grace. Let us look for his blessings in our lives. You know, let us turn those observations into praises of thanksgiving just spoken from our lips. And in all those things, yes, in medical things, yes, in things that have to do with your jobs, but yes, even little things like we caught a turtle. Not only, I mean, the rest of the stories, we caught five baby turtles. The next day, or two days later, we went back, caught five more. We have ten turtles in our house right now. Uh, <laughs> if you want a turtle, see me after the service. Uh, anyway, so the last thing, and then, and then we'll pray. David thanked God for deliverance from sickness, but, but we who live on this side of the cross, we who live after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have even greater reason for thanking God when we face afflictions. Because we know, with, with no uncertain terms, that because... Jesus' sacrifice, we've been saved from death and judgment. We have been. See, in 2 Timothy 1.10, tells us this. says, Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For the Christian, how much more can and should we be speaking and singing the praises of Jesus? Because, because God has united us to Christ when our faith is in Jesus, even when sickness does lead to death. We know that we have eternal life in the kingdom. It's not a day of our life that goes by that we shouldn't be praising the Lord for so many things that we see left and right happening in our life. You know? Sure, we're, we're weak. But our Savior is strong and nothing can separate us from his love. Let's pray. Lord, we who have been given the gift of faith to look to you for forgiveness of sin and, and who have been brought into a relationship with you through Christ, we, we will give thanks to you forever, literally forever. Lord, Lord, teach us to have grateful hearts today that we would sing your praises and not be silent, for you are amazing. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.